So usually what, uh, what a Christian will do is they will have their Bible in one hand and they'll buy a little guide from a guide seller for a dollar uh, that lists the stations of the cross uh, along with cross-reference verses and a little map and you start on your journey of the Via De La Rosa. Now, here's what's a little bit confusing. Here are the, the uh, first, or the, the first uh, station is Jesus is condemned to death. And Pilate, uh, remember, officially condemns Jesus under the authority of Rome to be crucified. Now, if you look at a, a map of Jerusalem, this is how it would have looked in Jesus' day. Jesus was arrested here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the first station of the cross that's marked with that little Roman numeral one is right here at the Antonia Fortress where they say Pilate uh, condemned Jesus to die. Well, since then, virtually every biblical archaeologist says that's not where Pilate uh, condemned Jesus. He was actually over here in the palace of Herod. So Jesus would have been brought first to the palace of the high priest, then to Herod. So this is where the Via de la Rosa should start, but it starts here, therefore throwing off all the stations. Right? That's the first little problem. Uh, second little problem is you read that station three is Jesus falls for the first time, and uh, seven, Jesus falls the second time, and nine, Jesus falls the third time. And you, you look up the cross-reference in your Bible, there's no third time, there's no second time, there's not even a first time. Jesus doesn't fall. Now, Simon from Cyrene does carry the cross for Jesus, and it's assumed the reason that Simon carried the, the cross is because Jesus stumbled and fell, but it doesn't say that. There may be another reason, and that's simply to humiliate Jesus. Rather than allowing him to put his head down carrying the cross, they made him walk out in front. But other than all the stations being wrong and there not being three fallings, um, well, there's some other problems. Here we have Jesus on the Via De La Rosa. He meets his mother. And that was just a, a, a heart-wrenching scene in the Passion of the Christ when Jesus' eyes meet with Mary's eyes as he's carrying the cross. And you look that up. It's not in there. Now, Mary was at the foot of the cross, and he talks to her, but they don't meet on the Via De La Rosa. Then, of course, there's that heart-wrenching scene when Veronica wipes the face of Jesus on a napkin, and his face is preserved um, forever on that napkin. You go, Veronica? Wasn't she in the Archies? Yeah, she was... There's no Veronica, there's no napkin, there's, that's just a legend that crept in there. Actually, um, Veronica, the Latin word for truth, veritas, and picture, icon, true picture, uh, somehow the story got told that this happened and his true picture, his Veronica, was, was preserved, but there's no Veronica in the Bible. Then, well, finally, you make it to Golgotha, where he was crucified. 
but what we discover is there are two sites in Jerusalem. It's disputed whether they got the right site or not. And then in the church that they, they've built over uh, Golgotha, it's conveniently under the same roof as the tomb a few feet away, um, and that's disputed as to whether that's the true place. So other than it all being wrong, it is really um, kind of a neat thing to do to walk the Via de la Rosa. Okay? Now, am I trying to discourage you from going to Jerusalem? No. No. I'd, I'd say it's worth your effort to do it. Okay? Just go with a guide who knows what they're doing. Right? Um, but here's what I do want to encourage you. You have everything you need right here to take you to the cross. If you can go to Jerusalem, that's great. If you never make it, though, we can walk to the cross by reading the scriptures. And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to uh, have us walk to the cross. We're going to make 11 stops, and I'm going to use some objects to help us focus in on what was going on. So here we go. Um, Let's start with Jesus leaving the Last Supper. And he takes his apostles with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he asks for Peter, James, and John to go with him a little bit further. Then he tells them to stay. And he says, pray. And he goes a little bit further and he falls on his face and begins talking to God the Father about the cross. And here's what I want us to see. Luke twenty-two, forty-four says this. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So here's item number one a blood-stained cloth. Doctors tell us that there's actually a rare condition. It's called hematidrosis, where under incredible amounts of stress, the blood vessels can actually burst and intermingle in your sweat glands. But this is only under tremendous stress, and you will actually sweat blood. Now, Hebrews chapter 9 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, there's some debate. When did the atonement where Christ shed his blood for us, when did it actually begin? Did it begin when he started sweating blood? Or did it begin when he was flogged? Or was it, when he was actually nailed to the cross? Or was it when the darkness came over the land? I don't know the exact point when the atonement, when the payment, when the punishment for sin actually began. But I do know this. In the garden, just the thought of the wrath to come produced the sweating of blood. 
Yet, he got up and he followed through. Any one of us would have stopped right there. But he followed through. So the lesson of the sweating of blood is this. Behold the courage of our Savior. He went through with it. All right, so that's the first lesson, the first stop. Let's move a little further. He gets up and he goes to his friends who he said, told them to pray for him, and they're all asleep. He wakes them up. He looks up and a battalion of soldiers with torches and clubs and swords shows up. And then he sees his friend Judas coming at him. And Judas kisses him, betraying him. It was hard to identify who Jesus was in the dark. And everybody back then had a robe and a beard, so how would the soldiers know who Jesus was? Judas had worked out a deal to identify him with a kiss. The soldiers grabbed Jesus to arrest him. And it says this in Luke's Gospel. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we we strike with the sword? And one of them, and we know this is Peter from the other Gospels, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So the next object, and we're just going to lay these out so you can remember them. But the next object, it's not a, a broad sword, a large sword. It's a small sword, bigger than a pocket knife, smaller than a sword. Peter takes it, and he thinks, all right, let the revolution begin. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of Kings. Let's rumble, right? And he takes a shot at one of them, chops off their ear, and you would think Jesus would say, yes, charge. He says, put your sword away, Peter. And right then, I'm sure Peter fell apart. He didn't understand. What? I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were going to start a revolution. Put your sword away. And in fact, Jesus not only has him put his sword away, but the enemy, you know, Peter, uh, one, one pastor says, it's not that, that Peter was going for his ear. He was just a bad shot. He was going for his head, and he sliced off his ear. But Jesus now, out of compassion, heals the ear of the guy who just lost his ear. What's the lesson here? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin But Christ's revolution is brought about not by the shedding of other people's blood, but by the shedding of his own blood. The nightmare has begun, but in the middle of the nightmare, Jesus has enough compassion to heal the enemy's ear. Let's move on. Jesus is arrested. 
and he's brought to the palace of the high priest. It was the priest who sent the soldiers to begin with. And there they hold kangaroo court. False witnesses are already lined up, and they bring false charges against him. But he refuses to defend himself. Matthew says this, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus has been totally silent at this point. He's not talking. But now they put him under oath. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man, remember that term, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Remember, Son of Man and clouds. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. So here... This is, this is our best effort at the high priest's robe here. Okay, So he, uh, he hears that Jesus claims to be the Son of Man who will come on the clouds in power. And he says, blasphemy. And he tears his robe. Apparently he did that a lot. Maybe he just had Velcro that he, you know. And he says, blasphemy. What's the verdict? Death. Now, what was Jesus referring to when he talked about the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power or of God and coming on the clouds of heaven? Well, in the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel has a dream. By the way, people say, this whole idea of a trinity, that's just a New Testament concept. You don't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. Oh, yes, you do. Here, Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds, remember the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, he came to God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. He's seated at the right hand, all right? He's given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, the Jews were aware of this passage. I'm sure it confused them. But Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. I am the son of, son of man, and all the world will serve me and worship me one day. And the high priest rips his robe. And they sentence him to death. What was the, the, uh, the reason for the sentence of death? Truth. He just told the truth. The high priest considered it blasphemy. And for speaking the truth, he was condemned. Now, um, little problem the Jewish leaders had no authority so they have to take him to the Roman authorities to pronounce judgment so the next morning they wake up and they have 
another little official meeting, and they officially condemn him under their Jewish rules, but they have to take him to Pilate. But before we go to Pilate, you're wondering what happened to Judas. So Matthew has a little interlude, and we learn about Judas. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So you remember, Judas went to the priests and he said, what will you give me if I lead you to Jesus? And they said, 30 silver coins. You know what, was, what that was worth back then? $7,500. Quick 7000 bucks, right? $7,500. And at the time, it just seemed so worth it. And that's what Satan does. He tries to convince you that whatever sin you're about to commit is just so worth it. But then he has the money in hand, and he sees what happens to Jesus. And all of a sudden, what was so worth it becomes worthless and he throws it into the temple. Yeah, you can get those later. Okay. Right. What's the lesson? Satan is a liar. He'll convince you that this sin and this sin and this sin is so worth it. And then he'll spit you out after you sell your soul. Satan also convinced Judas said he couldn't be forgiven. Peter was forgiven, but Judas thought he couldn't be forgiven, and he went and he hanged himself. That's the lesson of the coins. Now, back to Jesus. He is brought bound to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate, you know, he's awakened early uh, on a Friday. And uh, they bring this man, bloodied man, before him. And he says, what, what's going on here? And they try to explain that he's a blasphemer. And he says, that doesn't have anything to do with me. You, you deal with him. No, no, no. This is such a serious crime that he needs to die. Oh, I see. You want me to kill him. And Pilate questions Jesus. Jesus doesn't answer. And Pilate begins to see that he's as innocent as the day is long. And he doesn't want to condemn him. In fact, he tries to get him released three times. The whole Barabbas thing. Hey, I'm going to release a, a, a criminal. Who do you want? This notorious murderer, Barabbas, or this guy, Jesus? Come on, you want Jesus, don't you? And they say, no, release Barabbas. And then they threaten him. They say, if you don't condemn Jesus, we're going to tell Caesar. 
And Pilate has to decide, do I want to continue being governor? I better kill him. But he doesn't like it. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So he actually has water brought out. Pitcher in a basin. It's not that his hands were dirty. His conscience was dirty. And he washes his hands in front of the Jews. And he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You do it. See to it yourselves. But they can't do it because they don't have authority. So even though he says, I'm not making a decision, you do it, he winks and gives them the authority to kill Jesus. What's the lesson here? He didn't want to decide, and his decision not to decide was a decision to condemn Jesus. There's an old rock band named Rush. They have a song called Free Will. I think they're Arminians. And in that, uh, in that song, they have a great line. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Mr. Pilate, you say you haven't decided. But to decide not to decide for Jesus is to decide against Jesus. Jesus himself said this, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. By not making a choice for Jesus, you have chosen against Jesus. And for all eternity, we read the Apostles' Creed, he was crucified under, not under Caiaphas, not under Judas, under Pontius Pilate. So what's the lesson here? You must decide. You must decide for or against Jesus. And to decide not to decide is to decide against Jesus, as we learn from Pontius Pilate. Next. Matthew 27, 26. Then he released for them Barabbas. We talked about Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus... You read about scourging. The Romans would, according to custom, scourge a condemned criminal before he was put to death. The Roman scourge, also called the flagrum or the flagellum, was a short whip made of two or three leather oxhide strings or rope connected to a handle, as in the sketch. The leather thongs were knotted with a number of small pieces of metal, usually zinc and iron, attached at various intervals. Scourging would quickly remove the skin. According to history, the punishment of a slave was particularly dreadful. The leather was knotted with bones or heavy indented pieces of bronze. Sometimes the Roman scourge contained a hook at the end and was given the terrifying name scorpion. The criminal was made to stoop, which would make 
deeper lashes from the shoulders to the waist. According to Jewish law, the number of stripes was 40 less one. So they wouldn't go, uh, 40 would kill a guy, they thought, so always make it 39, right? Nevertheless, scourging among Romans was a more severe form of punishment, and there was no legal limit to the number of blows uh, as there was with the Jews. Deep lacerations, torn flesh, exposed muscles, and excessive bleeding would leave the criminal half dead. Death was often the result of this cruel form of punishment, though it was necessary to keep him alive to be brought to a public subjugation on the cross. The centurion in charge would order the lictors to halt the flogging when the criminal was near death. Your job is to watch, to see death approaching and stop right before he died so he could be brought to the cross. What's the lesson of the scourging? By his stripes, we are healed. After he is bloodied with the scourging, The crown of thorns. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling, remember the kneeling, kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. I would say the theme of Matthew's account of the passion is that of humiliation. Every paragraph. Is about the humiliation of Jesus. And rather than them crowning him with a real crown, they take a crown of thorns to mock him and they slam it on his head. And they take a reed and they hit him on the head. And then they spit on him and they bow down before him in mocking royalty. Little do they know that that is not the only time they will bow before Jesus. Every one of you will too. So will I. Philippians says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The lesson of the mock bowing is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Next, he's given his own cross to carry to the place of crucifixion. Simon of Cyrene does carry it for him at one point. And when they come 
to the place where he's going to be crucified, we read this. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So they give him wine, but he won't drink it. Why? Because when he tastes it, he sees that it's mixed with gall. What is gall? It's a sedative. I'm sure he was thirsty. He'd been brutalized all night. He had lost a ton of blood. He'd carried a heavy cross. But if he drank it, it would have numbed the pain. He refused to numb the pain. Why? He was there to pay the full price. He willingly drank the full cup of wrath to the dregs. And now, Mark's gospel simply says, and they crucified him. What is crucifixion? A medical doctor provides a physical description. The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot with both feet extended, toes down. A nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this searing torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As his arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in a deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to give even uh, one small breath, to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partly subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward 
to exhale, to bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermediate partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in his chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. All this Mark records with the words, and they crucified him. The lesson, what wondrous love is this? As he's hanging on the cross, he looks down. And when they had crucified him, the soldiers, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, by rolling die. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. We don't know that they were die like this. But there were some form of, uh, of something that they threw. Heads up, tails down. How many sides? I don't know. But imagine the cruelty of putting nails through the, the wrists and the feet of a man, stripping him naked to humiliate him, And as he's crying in agony, all they can do is say, I get the tunic. I get this. No, you don't. Let's roll some dye. The utter cruelty of these men. But Jesus looks down upon them and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I believe, if you read through the lines of the text, that not only did he forgive them, but he saved them. When the centurion, so he's the guy in charge of the other four, and those who were with him, and those who were with him, that's those, these guys, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. I think they became believers. Just like the thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, was that theologically accurate? I don't know, but Jesus said, I'll see you in heaven. I think they came to salvation. Again, the lesson, the utter love of Jesus. And then, Matthew 27, 50 and 51, and Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Thank you. Now, if you're not familiar with Jewish history and the Old Testament, and you read this, you go, the curtain, why is that in there? Well, just a quick review. This is the, the temple mount in Jesus' day. Herod, the king, built it up. So it was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And um, this is the actual temple structure, and this is the temple itself. And what you find is a series of courts. This court, this, this fence right here that goes around the entire structure, uh, was a, a fence that basically said, if you're a Gentile, you've got to stay out here. No Gentiles beyond here. Then the Jews could go in here, and then there were other courts, but the, the women had to stay out here. They couldn't go in here. Only the men could go in here. Then of the men, only the priests could go in here. And of the priests, only certain of them could go into the first section of the temple, the holy place, but then only once a year the high priest could enter in with the blood of a sacrifice into the holy of holies where the glory of God dwelt. And the thing that was the final barrier between humanity and the glory of God was a curtain that stretched from the top to the bottom. The message of the temple was stay out, stay away. Holy God cannot have sinful man approach him unless there's blood and sacrifice in a priesthood. But as Jesus dies on the cross, the temple curtain is ripped in two and removed. The lesson is this. price has been fully paid. Those who are sinners, who know they are sinners, who trust in Christ the Savior, come. As Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly. And that doesn't say cavalierly. Doesn't say casually, but it does say Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus uh, accepted the, the mission. He absorbed the wrath of God. He paid the full price. And now he says to repentant sinners who trust in him, come. Come receive mercy. The curtain is torn. That's why we don't have temples anymore. We don't have priests anymore. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our high priest. You come directly to God through Jesus. What a wonderful Savior.